This evening we're having a shear in memory of Rivka Rosenwein, an early student of Drisha, and together with her husband, supporters of Drisha from, virtually from its inception. It's my pleasure this evening to introduce Rabbi Avraham Walfish from Israel, who has written a very important work on the literary approach to the study of the Mishnah, and this, will, this session will initiate an extended study of the Mishnah beginning tonight in memory of Rivka. We'll explore the Mishnah from a variety of, of perspectives, and the goal is to increase the devotion to and the study of Mishnah by Jews here in Drisha, New York, and around the world. I'd like to introduce Judy Heikwin, who'll say a few words. Of course. I have to open with a Mishnah. Uh, in uh, Perkei Avot, first parak, Yoshua ben Parachia, Venita Harabeli, Kiblumihem. They're talking about the transmission. Yoshua ben Parachia, Mer. It's a very famous, you know, very famous saying. What I really wanted to talk about was You know, is such a, a forceful word. You know, it's a, it, go out and acquire. In English, we use a different but equally forceful word, make a friend. You know, it, it's a very proactive um, word. It's a, it, it implies a good deal of effort. Rivka and I started learning together almost exactly 19 years ago. We were not friends. In fact, we barely knew each other. We had met four years previously and had seen each other maybe half a dozen times over the intervening years. But we became chavrusas. Um, since Rivka was the, was the one with the way of words, I was just going to read from her article because I figured who's going to have a forward article from you know, 14 years ago and I brought my copy and I was going to quote how she characterized our friendship. Little did I know you all have it in front of you, um, so that means I can't cheat and only, cut and only read the parts I like. But let me just read a little bit about what she had to say about um, our friendship. And you can follow along in the text if you'd like. Chavrusa is an Aramaic term derived from the word for friend. Its regularity and its sharing of minds leads to a particular kind of friendship. Judy and I hooked up because of a common interest. We did not know each other well before we started learning together, and we are still not each other's closest confidant. But except for my husband and office colleagues, I see Judy more regularly than I see anyone else in my life. To schedule our weekly appointments, she must know my story deadlines, my husband's late nights, and what I have in the refrigerator on Tuesdays. Pasta, by the way. Um, I, in turn, must be attuned to when her monthly balance sheets are due, when her folks are in town visiting, or when she has a date. Our chavrusa, we realized recently, is the only activity that either one of us has kept up for five years running since we attended grade school. Neither of us has held a job, an apartment, or a boyfriend for that long. And I'd also like to mention that 14 years later, that's actually still true. <laughs> she described it as a particular kind of friendship, but it was not only one of being in tune with each other's schedules or just having regular hours of steady contact. It was one built through shared intellectual struggle with a text that captivated us. Through the teamwork of discovering, well, to be a bit more humble, probably uncovering, hidden meanings in one of the foundational sources for how we go about our daily lives. Mishnah was the vehicle through which our kinyan of chaver was affected. To give credit where credit is due, I also need to mention one other person. Through wrestling with text, peeling back layers, each of us was also kona another chaver, our friend Pinny. Pinny gave us necessary background and context, helped us with obscure vocabulary, and elucidated that which was unclear. Well, usually he did. You are probably more familiar with him by his last name, Kahati. But to us, he was always Pinny. And I think that is emblematic of how we approached Mishnah. A bit irreverent, but passionate nonetheless. Mishnah spoke to us, and we talked right back. 
So you're saying to yourself, this is very nice and all, but what does it have to do with us here today? And I think learning for us was also something to be shared with our community. At the end of each Masechet, we held a siyum. These varied in form and timing, but occurred regularly. Our first, on Masechet Megillah, was in Rivka's parents' apartment on a Shabbat afternoon, not far from here. We asked a lot of she'elot, borrowed a Sefer Torah, held a mincha service, and then had our siyum. We held subsequent siyumim on a Shabbat afternoon in Riverside Park, at a Fleshik restaurant during the nine days, to give everyone a break, and on a wild and swinging Saturday night in Rifka and Barry's apartment, farther up on the Upper West Side. Rifka even threw a surprise siyum for me on the occasion of my ufruf at the women's service at Lincoln Square. She had been asked to deliver the Dvar Torah, and she suddenly broke out into Hadran Alach, Masachet Eruvin. Our penultimate siyum was held Purim 2002, shortly after Rifka was diagnosed. As we said the Yehirat Zon, we both stumbled. Yehirat Zon lefanecha Hashem alokai, kashem she'azartani l'sayem masachet k'tuvot, kein ta'azreni lahatchil masachetot u'sfarim acharim u'lisaymam. V'almodu l'lameid l'shmur v'lasot, l'kayemek kol divrei talmud taratecha b'yahava. But we did begin the next masachet, and sure enough, we did have one more siyum. Our last siyum had 150 people come together on a Saturday night, with each table assigned two prakim of yivamot to learn. Some tables spontaneously broke into pairs. At others, a natural teacher sprang forth to guide the others. Rivka herself taught a Mishnah to two friends. It was truly a communal learning and a very powerful evening. And at the end, she and I said the same yihirat zon as before, but the emphasis on a different line. Three days later, Rivka died. This, then, is what has driven the establishment of the Rivka Rosenwein Memorial Mishnah Shi'ur, the power of community and communal learning, the desire to keep the words of Torah in the mouths of our children, our shared love of the Mishnah itself, and above all, the recognition of how very special it is to be Kona, a true Chaver. Thank you, Judy. Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, I am deeply moved and gratified that so many of Rivka's friends and ours are here tonight to participate in what we, in what we hope will be only the first of the Rivka Rosenwein Memorial Lecture in Mishnah. I'm grateful to Rabbi Silver for his vision in planning this annual lecture program, and I'm honored that Rabbi Avi Waltish will deliver tonight's lecture. In truth, I'd initially been unfamiliar with Rabbi Wolfish's groundbreaking work in the literary study of Mishnah. So when Rabbi David Silber came to my office to plan tonight's program, he dropped off Rabbi Wolfish's 500-page PhD thesis in tiny Hebrew letters. <laughs> Take a look at it, Rabbi Silber urged me, and next week we'll get together and we'll discuss it. I got a bit bogged down in footnote 429, actually, and we, 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 we can discuss that later. But it, it is really entirely fitting that Drisha become the home for this lasting legacy to Rivka. Rivka studied at Drisha. She identified with Drisha. From the time we were married, Rivka would schlep me every year to, Rif, to Drisha's dinner. Drisha was Rivka's spiritual home. And I want to thank Judy Heiklin for her amazing generosity not just in underwriting this memorial lecture series, but for her generosity of spirit and friendship over decades to Rivka and to me. Rivka was by nature a happy person, but I seldom saw her happier than when she was learning Mishnah with Judy. I remember 
Judy calling Rivka at 9 o'clock in the evening, New York time would be like who knows what time in Singapore where she was posted for that month. And Rivka would laugh and giggle as they would discuss, you know, gossip and schmooze and sometimes even learn Mishnah. <laughs> but, but learn they did. And I came to mark the passage of our years together of my marriage with Rivka with the various siyumim that Rivka and Judy made. And the last siyum, as Judy said, for Masechet Yevamot took place, you know, two days before Rivka died. And 13 years ago, Rivka wrote this article in the foreword that Judy has, has read from so beautifully. Uh, the article, I think, highlights Rivka's passion for learning Torah and sheds light on why we are here tonight. It is not easy to let go of a person you love, of a person we all loved. But knowing that an essence of Rivka will endure in the study of Mishnah may become a comfort to us. There's a Gemara Moed Katan, the Chaf Aleph Amid Beis, that tells of the death of two sons of Rabbi Akiva. Maisu, Maisu, Banach, Rabbi Akiva. Nichtasu, Kol Yisrael, has paid him, has paid Throngs of people came and delivered great eulogies. But in the end, as the Gemara tells, or according to Rashi at least, it was Rabbi Akiva who comforted the people, perhaps more than the people comforted him. Rabbi Akiva stood on a great bench, on a great platform, Omar Rabbi Akiva Safsal Gadol, and he comforted the people. He comforted them with Torah and with acknowledging the good that they had done. And Rabbi Akiva concluded his remarks by saying, Return to your homes in peace. I'm not sure I'm able to say that tonight. I'm not sure, well, for one thing, I'm not Rabbi Akiva, although perhaps my son Akiva, who's here tonight, may one day become a Rabbi Akiva. But I'm not sure I want to say return to your homes in peace because so many of you have become a part of our home and our lives over the past few trying years, and I don't want you to leave. And I'm not sure I can say return to your homes in peace because in a fundamental way, we are unable to return to our homes. Rivka's death has forever altered our homes. The most we can do, and the most, I suppose the most we must do, is to proceed to a different home, an altered home, perhaps in time a new home, and one that will contain, preserve, and promote some part of Rivka, and that will continue to inspire us and bring out the best in us. There's a short poem, a fragment actually, that was recently found among Yehuda Michai's papers after the noted Israeli poet died. Rivka liked Amichai, or at least she claimed she did it when I once gave her a collection of his poetry as, as a gift. The poem goes like this. Everything that lives and endures <clears throat> for more than a day after we die is eternal. We live in the eternity of others. We are their eternity. We who are here tonight to inaugurate this annual program in the study of Mishnah live in the light of Rivka's eternity. By continuing to draw inspiration and illumination and the study of Torah and Mishnah from Rivka, we can perhaps go home in peace while keeping Rivka a presence in our lives. We who are here tonight are Rivka's eternity. May her memory be a blessing. Rabbi Wolf. Now that I'm all wired up, um, the Mishnah is a central canonical text with which every serious student of Jewish texts is highly familiar, 
nonetheless, it's a highly problematic text. I'd like to talk for a couple of minutes about some of the problems involved in study of Mishnah. One of the problems which Judy already touched on is that Mishnah is not a self-explanatory text. Tanakh, to a very great extent, is self-explanatory. Talmud, to a great extent, is self-explanatory. doesn't mean that we don't need uh, commentators and interpretation, but the text clarifies, to a very great extent, what it's about, what it's trying to say. Uh, as Judy noted uh, earlier, it's very hard to learn Mishnah without the help of Pini or some of Pini's predecessors uh, because Mishnah, in fact, is a highly gnomic text. Uh, it's very brief and for, for the most part, the Mishnah does not supply the rationale for the statements that it makes, particularly in halakhic uh, uh, matters, which is the vast bulk of Mishnah. There's much background information that Mishnah presupposes all one needs to do is to compare Mishnah to its companion text, the Tosefta, which is about three times as long as Mishnah, uh, to see how much more expansive the Mishnah could have been uh, and it could have clarified itself. And even then, a great deal would be, uh, uh, would be left wanting. But it's not only that the Mishnah is a very brief text uh, and not self-explanatory, the very purpose of this compilation is not altogether clear. We, uh, we know quite a bit about where, when, and by whom the Mishnah was compiled by Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, Rabbi, around the year 200 CE. Uh, we also pretty much know that uh, one of the main purposes of the compilation of Mishnah was to serve as a digest of Tarash Balpeh to prevent it from being forgotten. And, uh, and um, scholars have suggested that many of the features of Mishnah are in fact designed to serve as an aid to, to memory, uh, called mnemotechnical devices. Uh, and in fact, many of the students of Mishnah study Mishnah for precisely this reason. It serves as a kind of handy summary of rabbinic halakha, or as an introductory text to rabbinic halakha, Nevertheless, many questions remain even after we accept all of this. For one thing, what governed Rabbi's selections of materials? There's a great deal left out in the Mishnah. Often there are uh, seemingly unnecessary repetitions in the Mishnah. How exactly did Rabbi decide what to include in the Mishnah and what to, uh, and what to leave out? And this relates, in fact, to the very purpose of the book. Was this book designed to be halachically authoritative? Opinions are divided on this issue going back to the time of the Talmud where Rabbi Yochanan claimed that halacha kistam mishnah, but many other Amoraim disagreed and felt that halacha is not necessarily in accordance with Islam mishnah. And down to the present day when leading mishnah scholars have debated exactly the same point. Uh, scholars such as Epstein and Urbach have argued that the Mishnah is designed to be halakhically authoritative, or as Rorbach would have it, at least uh, a text to be consulted for the sake of halakhic authority, even if not fully authoritative. And on the other hand, you have other leading scholars, such as Albeck and uh, Avram Goldberg, who, who have argued that the Mishnah was never designed in any way to be halakhically authoritative, and the selection of materials was governed by something else, rhetorical considerations, educational considerations, whatever exactly that might mean. 
A further problematic point regarding the study of Mishnah relates not to the selection of materials, but to the arrangement of the materials. How did Rebbe arrange his materials? And anyone who has tried not just studying individual Mishnayot, tried to follow along, to, to analyze larger blocks of text, uh, realizes that the structure of the Mishnah is highly problematic. The Gemara often has addressed itself to, the, uh, to this issue. Several Masechtot open with the question, Tana Hechakai. Where was the Tana standing? Where does this come from? Because many Masechtot, in fact, seem to start in midstream, in the middle of a topic. There are even some Masechtot that seem to start at the end. Masechet Gitin ends with a Mishnah and a what seems to be a very arcane topic, which involves almost every single concept that comes up in the Masechet. Because you have to have gone through a, the vast majority of the Masechet to even understand what this Mishnah is talking about, what happens when a messenger brings a get from overseas, and he has to say, it was written and, and uh, sealed before me, and signed before me, and these are all the major concepts that are later introduced by the Masechet, so this is already presupposed by the first Mishnah. The last Mishnah of the Masechet, on the other hand, is really what we would have expected to be the first Mishnah. Under what circumstances may a man divorce his wife? And so the whole world in this Masechet seems to be completely topsy-turvy. A further problem in the arrangement of Mishnah is that even though, by and large, the Mishnah is arranged topically, the Mishnah frequently departs from the topical arrangement and starts to bring associative uh, units, uh, units that are arranged by some kind of association, names, numbers, or, or other kinds of common uh, themes or phrases that, uh, related to topics that seem to have nothing, nothing to do with one another. Um, and so it's really difficult to, uh, to make heads or tails out of what exactly this highly enigmatic text is all about. Okay, I'm not, in the next hour or so, I'm not going to solve all the problems. I promise not to solve all the problems, even, uh, um, even if I could. But uh, what, what I do intend to do is to try to set, shed some light on these issues. And uh, the tools I'm going to be using in order to answer uh, these questions are the tools of literary scholarship. Tools such as word plays, keywords, envelope structures, parallelism, chiastic structures, and the like, tools that we're familiar with from uh, other areas of literary study. We're quite familiar with them in recent generations from the study of, uh, from the study of Tanakh. Um, these uh, phenomena abound in Mishnah, and uh, rather than continue with a lengthier introduction, Azman Katsar Vamlacham Rubah, and so we'll turn right away to examples. You have them uh, before you. First example from Rosh Hashanah, chapters 1 and 2. Uh, another thing I can promise you, uh, not only am I not going to solve all the problems of Mishnah study, I'm not going to explain every detail in the Mishnah units that we're going to be examining. I picked larger Mishnah units so that we could look at, uh, at patterns, we could look for some of the underlying ideas, and uh, you have the text in front of you for, uh, for reference. We're going to be analyzing only parts of the text and answering some of the questions 
and analyzing the ideas up to a point. And uh, my hope is that if you find the ideas stimulating and interesting, then you'll continue to reflect on them and on the texts that, uh, that contain them uh, afterwards. So we're going to start the ball rolling in a, a few different areas, and uh, hopefully people will pick up the ball and, and uh, continue with it afterwards. Masechet Rosh Hashanah uh, is well known among scholars as a, uh, as a Masechet with, uh, with difficult structure. Epstein characterized it as a Mishnah that's a sort of uh, collection from here and from there, from a lot of different sources, and where there are a lot of, uh, a lot of questions regarding how these sources were put together. Just to take one simple example, the first two Mishnayot that you have here before you deal with topics that relate to years. There are four new years. There are four times during the year when the world is judged. Those, those are the first two Mishnayot. And then the Mishnah takes a rather sharp turn and starts talking about Kiddush HaChodesh, the subject that occupies the Mishnah for the next two chapters. At which time, in the third chapter, the Mishnah comes back to deal with the subject of years. Seems rather strange. You open with years, then you have a lengthy unit dealing with the sanctification of the new month, Kiddush HaChodesh, then you come back to years. It would seem more logical to divide it up. Start with months, move on to years, or if you prefer, start with years, move on to months. But th this kind of uh, jumping back and forth uh, is not uncharacteristic of Mishnah. That doesn't necessarily make it more comprehensible. A second issue that, that's well known in Masechet Rosh Hashanah is that chapters tend to end in very strange places. They either uh, end in the middle of a topic or they go on too long. The, the chapters that go on too long are chapters 3 and 4, which we're not going to examine. The chapters we are going to examine are both chapters that seem to end too soon. Chapter 1 ends in the middle of a discussion of what the witnesses do uh, when they have to come to testify on Shabbat, how they go about violating the Shabbat in order to testify to the sanctification of the new moon. Um, and uh, that subject goes on into the middle of the second chapter, and yet the first chapter closes with a uh, what, what seems to be summing up the idea, if you just look at the bottom of the first page, uh, you'll see it, uh, the very last paragraph in Mishnah Tet, on the first page, I'm not going to translate the text that I read. Anyone who needs the translation, please feel free as I read the Hebrew, to read along in the English. Uh, they parallel one another. So here we have what seems to summarize that topic, and yet the topic continues on into the next chapter. By the same token, the second chapter, which you have on the second page, um, ends with the famous story of Rabban Gamliel and Rabbi Yoshua and their confrontation regarding a disputed case of Kiddush HaChodesh. And yet the first Mishnah of the third chapter continues to talk about Kiddush HaChodesh, at which time the Mishnah again cuts back to, uh, to discussing the, the, the Halachot of Rosh Hashanah. So here we have a second well-known problem in the structure of Masechet Rosh Hashanah. Uh, how, are the chapters, uh, how are the chapters divided? There are many other uh, problems, but 
we'll, we'll uh, uh, leave the problems at this point and start, start to look at how we can perhaps approach uh, some of the solutions. Uh, in terms of the uh, moving back and forth between the sanctification of the month and the, uh, uh, and the new year, the Mishnah does seem to be indicating, and, and this is supported by, uh, by the openings of the first several Mishnayot, the Mishnah does seem to be indicating that there is some kind of integral connection between these two ideas. And particularly if you look at the openings of the first four Mishnayot, okay, you'll notice a number pattern. Arba'a Rashi Shanim, Barba'a Prakim Haolam Nidon, the third Mishnah, Al Shisha Chodashim Ashtuchim Yotzim, the fourth Mishnah, Al Shnei Chodashim Mechalina Tashabat. I was not the first one to notice this number pattern. It was already noted in the 18th century by the uh, by Rabbi Shlomo Ha'adani, well-known Mishnah commentator who lived in Hebron, and uh, he used that to explain why these Mishnayot are brought together. Uh, there are further connections among these Mishnayot. The central role of Nisan in Tishrei links all four of these Mishnayot, and uh, I, I'm not going to uh, uh, go into this in great detail, but it does seem as though the Mishnah wants to tell us that before we talk about Kiddush HaChodesh, the sanctification of the new month, it's important for us to know what the real payoff is. The real importance of Kiddush HaChodesh is that Kiddush HaChodesh sanctifies, uh, sanctifies the festivals. It sanctifies the appointed times, and particularly the appointed times that are listed in Mishnah Bet, which are very central times. These are times when the world is judged. The times when one stands in judgment before God are very central. And these times are exactly the times about which the Mishnah says that you violate the Shabbat, you desecrate the Shabbat in order to sanctify the new month. These are the, the new months that have that kind of significance. And we wouldn't understand this quite as fully. The Mishnah didn't open with the discussion of the New Year's and the Arba Prakim Shabahem Haolam Nidon, the four periods in which the, the, the world is judged. What I'd like to focus on, though, more closely, is the chapter endings. The chapter endings have a very interesting pattern to them. The two chapter endings parallel one another in more than one respect. The fancy term uh, for this in literary uh, uh, language is epiphora, the uh, parallel between endings of units. And if we look at the end of Mishnah Tet in the first chapter, and if we look at the uh, parallel Mishnah at the end of the second chapter, we'll see the following parallels that you can see at the bottom of page 2. The first is that the same Pasuk is interpreted in both Mishnayot, either the same Pasuk or a very similar Pasuk and there are different manuscript versions which I won't bore you with right now. At the end of the first chapter, and the word bimoadam is very, very highly stressed. That's exactly the word from which the Mishnah learns that it is vital that you sanctify the, the month on the correct day. Therefore, the witnesses will violate the Shabbat. 
They violate the Shabbat because it's so important that the right day be sanctified. But when we look at the very at the same pasuk or a very similar pasuk at the end of the second chapter, when Rabbi Yoshua is deliberating, Rabban Gamliel has said, "You must come before me and violate your Yom Kippur, the day that you think is Yom Kippur. You must desecrate because I don't think it's Yom Kippur. I've sanctified a different day." And when Rabbi Yoshua is deliberating about whether to obey this draconian decree, Rabbi Akiva comes to him and gives him the following drasha. You see on at the bottom of page 2 on the left. And he leaves out a word and completes It's a very strange drasha. The word in the Torah is b'mo'adam at its appointed time. Rabbi Akiva substitutes for this word in the Torah at its appointed time a phrase that means almost the same thing. Ben bismanan ben bismanan, whenever. Whether at the appointed time or not at the appointed time. means almost the same thing, just put a negative sign in front of it. The exact opposite idea of what it seems to say in the Pasuk. The, and what's no less striking the exact opposite idea of what the first chapter did with the same pasuk. The first chapter said it must be on that day. Desecrate the Shabbat if you have to, but make sure it's on that day. And the second chapter, Rabbi Akiva says to Rabbi Yoshua, puts his arm around his shoulder and says, don't feel so bad, it's not so terrible. Whatever Rabbi Gamliel says goes, how do I know it? From that pasuk. And it's clear that Rabbi Akiva did not interpret the word Okay? Some think that he interpreted the word otam, which is written without a vav, and therefore could be read as atem. It all depends on you. I think that it's likelier, based on parallel sources, that Rabbi Akiva actually was interpreting the word tikru'u. You are the ones who proclaim the day. Okay? Tikru'u. You must proclaim the day. It's your obligation to proclaim it. There is no sanctity to this day until and unless you proclaim it. And God doesn't sanctify these holy days. You sanctify these holy days by proclaiming them. Regardless of what, of what it is that Rabbi Akiva darshans from the Pasuk, it's very clear that we have two almost diametrically opposed ideas concluding the first chapter and concluding the second chapter. Now there's another interesting parallel between the end of the first chapter and then the second chapter. Continue reading a bit further down. The end of the first chapter tells us that if the witnesses, uh, and sometimes there are people who accompany them, if they're afraid that there might be people who, uh, who are waiting in ambush for them, and in fact we will learn at the beginning of the second chapter that there were people who were very highly opposed, uh, very vehemently opposed to Chazal's way of uh, sanctifying the new month to the point where they might even try to interfere with the process. So if you're afraid you might get ambushed along the way, then you take st uh, staffs in your hand in order to be able to ward off uh, any attackers. Lokim biadan maklot, and the Mishnah concludes, uh, uh, and the Mishnah also says, if a person can't walk, then he's conducted. On a donkey, that's Veino Yachol Halech. Okay, and the Mishnah concludes, Shal Mahalach Laila Bayom, for the journey 
the term is mahalach, literally a walk of a day and a night, you may uh, desecrate the Shabbat. If it takes longer than a day and a night, then there's no point in desecrating the Shabbat. You won't get there in time anyway. But if you can get there on time, so then you do desecrate the Shabbat. So the key terms here are the word lalechet and various forms of that, of that root, halach, okay, and maklot, to take stabs. Both of these words are echoed in the story of Rabban Gamliel and Rabbi Yoshua. Rabban Gamliel decrees upon Rabbi Yoshua, come before me, and Rabbi Yoshua walks to Yavne. He actually uh, does, in the end, uh, submit to the decree. He walks to Yavne, and he carries with him his staff. He carries with him his makel. So here we have yet another literary connection between the end of the first chapter and the end of the second chapter. I'd like to stress again that we already noted that both chapters seem to end in, in the wrong place. But if the chapters had ended in the right place, then we wouldn't have this parallel. In other words, where we're getting a bit of an insight, I think there are many other factors here as well, but again, it's not something we have time to go into tonight, but one of the main factors governing ending the chapter here and ending the chapter there was to create this parallel and particularly in the first case, the parallel is very striking. The parallel between you must sanctify the new month on the right day and whatever day you sanctify, that's fine. Okay? It all works out in the end. It doesn't really matter whether you sanctified the right day, uh, uh, the right day or not. That's a particularly striking parallel. The second parallel also has an interesting point that we'll, that we'll come, come to in, in just a couple of moments. But first, let's investigate a bit further the first, the first parallel. What, what exactly, in fact, is the Mishnah trying to convey when it creates this parallel between the two chapter, uh, between the two, two chapter endings? I believe that, uh, that the answer is fairly apparent. The Mishnah seems to be conveying that on one level, you can say the two ideas complement one another, even though on another level, as we've seen, the two ideas are in tension with one another. The, the complementary nature of the idea, if we think again about Rabbi Akiva's drasha, Rabbi Akiva's drasha was, Bein bismanan, bein shelo ein li mo'adot ela elu. Whether it, it's at its appointed time or not, I, says God, these are called Moadei Hashem, these are the Moadim of God, Eilem Moadei Hashem, Mikrei Kodesh, these are God's Moadot, but God's Moadot depend completely upon man. Man's sanctification becomes God's Moadot, becomes God's appointed times. In other words, man is entrusted with the sacred task of sanctifying the divinely appointed, uh, the divinely appointed festivals. The, the sanctity that God wants to create, he entrusts, he entrusts to man. So on one level, you can really see the two chapters of the Mishnahs complementing one another. The first chapter says, you must sanctify these days at the right time. Why? Because these are God's times. We do want, in the end, to sanctify the right day. Because this is not, we're not sanctifying our own times. This is a divine responsibility. Okay, it's a picadon, it's a, uh, uh, a, a deposit that God has made with us. We are responsible to him. And therefore, even though in the end, 
the second chapter says, whatever we say will ultimately be authoritative. God will not sanctify any day other than the day in we, uh, that we have sanctified. At the same time, it is our responsibility, and this responsibility is spelled out quite clearly in the first chapter, it's our responsibility to sanctify the right time. Okay? And so, the two ideas really complement one another, create a partnership between God and man. God wants the sanctity. God will ultimately sanctify the days. He's the source of all sanctity. On the other hand, he entrusts us with the mission of actually proclaiming that sanctity. So there's a partnership between the, divine, the divinely ordained sanctity and the humanly ordained sanctity. On the other hand, there's also a tension between them because what happens when man does not, in fact, sanctify the right day? When Rabbi Yoshua is convinced that Rabban Gamliel has picked the wrong day. He believed witnesses he shouldn't have believed. And so he's sanctifying the wrong day. So God wants one day sanctified and man is sanctified another day. That's a tension. I believe that if you read through the chapters closely, you'll see that the Mishnah is not really about resolving the tension, but rather it's more about living with the tension. In other words, ultimately there has to be a resolution in terms of which days are actually sanctified. In terms of how do we view our task of sanctifying the new moon, okay, we view that as being simultaneously a divine task and a human responsibility. It's both. And as both, they're really two, we're really pulled in two different directions. Rabban Gamliel and Rabbi Yoshua reflect two different ways of going. If you look at the end of the second chapter, uh, move up uh, just a couple of lines from where you were, the very last line, when Rabban Gamliel welcomes Rabbi Yoshua and he says to him, Bo v'shalom Rabbi v'talmidi, Rabbi v'chokhma v'talmidi shekibalta alecha dvarai, when he says that, he's reflecting again the same tension. He's saying, Rabbi b'chokhma, you are a wiser man than I. A wiser man than I would translate in this particular story into a, a way of saying, you know, you might very well be right. It could be that you understand better than I do which day should have been sanctified, which witnesses should have been believed, and which day should have been sanctified. You might, you might be right, he says. That's one way in which you could resolve the dispute. But ultimately, he says, You accepted my authority. In other words, what was right took back seat. What was authoritative is actually what ended up making the determination. But again, I think Rabban Gamliel is reflecting the same tension that we see when we look at the two chapter endings. Rabban Gamliel is saying it's not a simple matter. It's not simple to say that I made a mistake, but it's authoritative nonetheless. It's a very uncomfortable position to be in. Rabbi Yoshua expresses in very stark terms just how uncomfortable you can be when you're forced to make that determination. You make the determination nonetheless. The Mishnah makes the determination in no uncertain terms. And yet the Mishnah also points up to us that that determination is the product of a tension, a conflict between two values one of which will have to give way, but in the end, of course, it results in a, conflicted, uh, uh, in a conflicted personality. So it seems to me that when we look at the two chapter endings, this is the sort of sense that we get. A tension which is resolved, but not, but not fully resolved. Now there's something else that 
goes on when we look, compare the two chapter endings, and this will focus on the other point that we mentioned. If you look at the makloth that are being taken at the end of the first chapter and the makel that's being taken at the end of the second chapter, I think the Mishnah is trying to tie together the role of the witnesses at the end of the first chapter with the role of the community at large in the second chapter. Rabbi Yoshua represents in the second chapter the community at large and he really adds a new dimension to Kiddush HaKodesh that the Halakha had not discussed at any point previously. And that is that when the court issues a ruling, the community has to accept it. Now Rabbi Yoshua, in the end, accepts that he is obligated to accept the ruling of the court. But if he didn't accept it, what would happen? If he wouldn't accept the ruling of the court, and he is a leading sage who sits on the high rabbinical court, if he doesn't accept it, what's the community at large going to say? Will they accept it? Will they divide up into factions? Some of them will, uh, will follow Rabban Gamliel. So, in which case, the people of Israel as a whole will not have festivals. Okay? The calendar requires unity. If the Jewish people as a whole are not observing the calendar, then ultimately, there really is no calendar whatsoever. And so, in a certain sense, Rabbi Yoshua is fulfilling a function at the end of the second chapter that parallels the function of the witnesses at the beginning of the first chapter. The witnesses come to the court in order to enable them to sanctify the new moon. The court is powerless to act without witnesses. But the court is also powerless to act without a community that accepts their rulings. If there's a community that feels that the court fails to understand their responsibility or to discharge it properly, then ultimately the court's authority will become a dead letter. And so the Mishnah again is saying there are two different groups of people or two different uh, um, aspects of the community coming before the court, walking to the court, carrying sticks in their hand. One of them is the witnesses coming before the court with sticks in their hand to ward off attackers. The other one is Rabbi Yoshua coming before the court with staff in hand, not to ward off attackers, but in a certain sense to ward off himself, to prevent himself from actually becoming an internal attacker against Kiddush HaKodesh. And in fact, if you look at the second chapter, you'll see both of these themes very clearly. The second chapter, if you look at the first two Mishnayot, the second chapter opens with two examples of disputes between the sages, Chazal, or their predecessors, the Prushim, okay, and different sects. In the first case, it's the Baitusim, identified by scholars today as probably being the Essenes. Okay? The Essenes rejected the whole calendar uh, as it was observed by Chazal, okay, and uh, Chazal are trying to combat their influence in the first Mishnah. We don't accept just any witness because it could be that it's, a, that it's a plant. Someone has planted false witnesses in order to get us to sanctify the wrong time. And Mishnah Bet tells us about the Kutim, the Shomronim, who also rejected the calendar and who tried to interfere 
with the sending out of the messages as to where, what day the court had decreed. So there's one group that tries to, uh, um, that tries to interfere with the proper procession of the witnesses. There's another group that tries to interfere with getting the message out to the public. The chapter ends with internecine disputes within the court, okay? and particularly the one between Rabban Gamliel and Rabbi Yoshua. Both of these, in fact, threaten the unity of the calendar. And in a way, it's not really surprising that the Essenes and other sects rejected the uh, approach to the calendar that we see in the Mishnah. The approach to the calendar that we see in the Mishnah okay, may make for good spy stories. I mean, they, 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 you know, it would make a good television series showing how the witnesses managed to escape all of the dangers and find their way finally to the court to sanctify the moon. And even then, okay, we have the internal disputes within the court that could, that could threaten it. And uh, we can readily understand the Essenes, who, like other sects, had a very highly organized and efficient solar calendar of 364 days that ran like clockwork, and no human intervention was, was necessary. What we see happening here, I think, is building on our first, on, on our first understanding. What we understood from the first point in comparing the end of the first chapter and the end of the second chapter was that the idea that, was, that the Mishnah was advancing was that this, a very exciting and challenging mission entrusted to man, and that is man has to proclaim the divine sanctified times. Well, the Essenes didn't have that, okay? and neither did the uh, Dead Sea sect and other sects that are reflected in the Apocrypha and in the Dead Sea Scrolls. For them, man had no role whatsoever in decreeing sanctity. Sanctity was established in the heavens, okay? and the sun basically determined the entire calendar. It was a solar calendar, and there were no question marks. Okay? For Chazal, of, uh, and, and we can readily understand that this calendar is much more efficient, and uh, perhaps the, the feeling of the Essenes was, if these are to be divinely appointed times, you can't entrust it to human beings. Because outside of the fact that human beings can make mistakes, what's even worse is that human beings can divide up into different factions. And there can be disputes. And there can be one group that thinks one way and another group that thinks another way. I know that none of you are familiar with this from your own private lives or your own communities. But at the time of Chazal, this was apparently the way things, uh, the way things operated. So the Essenes said, why? Why leave these things up to a committee? to decide when to sanctify the divinely appointed times. Okay? And yet, the message of the Mishnah is that this is exactly what happens. The divinely appointed times are left to man, and they're left to man including all of the divisiveness and all of the dispute within the society, and part of the responsibility of the people who are determining these divine times is to set up the kinds of social institutions that will, enable this, uh, that, that, that will enable this to proceed. Because man cannot shirk this responsibility. And so, the dispute about the calendar really, in the end, I believe, reflects a, a profound theological dispute between the approach, to, uh, the, the, the approach not only to sanctity of time, but the approach to sanctity in general taken by the Mishnah, and the approach to sanctity that was so characteristic 
of, uh, uh, of other sects. Is sanctity something that is decreed by God and man need only accept it? Or is sanctity something that is determined by man? Man has this divinely charged responsibility and he must accept it and it's a messy process and a difficult and a challenging process but we have to bite the bullet and we have to accept this responsibility and create the kinds of institutions that enable us to, uh, to, discharge, us, uh, to, to discharge it properly. I'd like to move from here to another Mishnah. The Mishnah you have in, uh, on page 3. Very different area of Halakha, but uh, as you'll soon see, I believe there are some common themes to this Mishnah and to the Mishnah unit that we've just investigated. Okay, this Mishnah we'll read together. Again, whoever needs, please follow along in the English. Benezek betzar b'ripui b'shevet uveboshet. Benezek ketzad simeet eno kitea et yado shiberet raglo. Roin oto kiilu hu eved nimkar bashuk b'shamin kama haya yafe v'chama hu yafe. Tzar kvao b'shipud o b'masmer v'afilo tziporno. Mekom sheno osse chabura. Omdin kama adam kayotze bazer rotel ito liot mitzayer kach. ריפוי, היכהו חייב לרפותו. עלו בו צמחים עם מחמת המכה, חייב שלא מחמת המכה פטור. חייתיו נסתרה, חייתיו נסתרה, חייב לרפותו. חייתה כל צורכה, אינו חייב לרפותו. שבט רואין אותו כאילו הוא שומר כישואין, שכבר נתן לו דמי ידו ודמי רגלו. בושת הכל לפי המבייש והמתבייש. All of these five kinds of damages that Uh, a uh, tortfeasor has to pay to his victim, uh, all, all these kinds of damages are damages that have some kind of complication involved in calculating them. Uh, the, the, the most apparent example is, of course, the first one, nezek. Okay, how much is a hand worth? Okay, I mean, how much, uh, you know, today we have uh, what didn't exist in the time of Chazal, where you can sell organs on the market, right? But... Uh, The time of Chazal, obviously, okay, there's no worth to a, detached, uh, to a detached hand. So you can't talk about the value of a hand or the value of a leg. And so the Mishnah has to give you some way of calculating this kind, uh, this kind of damage, and that's true of all five. So we have five kinds of damages, all of them which require some halachic sophistication in order to understand how they're calculated. What I'd like to look at together with you is... Uh, some of the patterns that run through the structure of this Mishnah. And I'd like to start off with the middle example. The middle example, or the middle payment, Ripui, stands out among the other payments uh, because it's not a payment. It says, Ripui chikahu chayav l'rapoto. It doesn't say he has to pay him his hospital uh, bills. It says he has to heal him. And in fact, the Gemara wonders what would happen if the, uh, um, if the Chovel, in fact, came to the victim and said to him, I'm a doctor, okay, so instead of taking money out of pocket and pay some, uh, a specialist some fancy prices, and I know what they are since I'm a doctor, uh, I'll heal you myself. Okay, what about that? Could, it, could he do that? The Gemara in the end rejects it and says that the 
uh, that the victim can say to him, when I look at you, what I, what I see is a, uh, is a hungry lion. Okay? In other words, uh, uh, there's a psychological component in healing as well, and uh, the fellow can say, I've had enough of you already, please, you know, just send the money, stay far away, and uh, I'll find someone who I'd, rather have, uh, who I'd rather have heal me. But the question arises because of the language of the Mishnah. The Mishnah, in fact, leaves open that possibility because the obligation is not to pay. The obligation is to heal. And in fact, this is an open-ended obligation, unlike any of the others. It's not that we, uh, uh, that we come to uh, some kind of assessor who says, okay, to heal this person, it's going to take such and such an amount of money. In fact, what the Mishnah details is, you heal him until he's healed. In other words, you continue paying for his medical costs until he's actually healed. Once he's healed, even if he suffers a relapse, you have to continue paying. Unless it can be established that, uh, that uh, it's not really a relapse. It's really a new condition and not, and not a relapse of the, uh, of the old condition. So this middle uh, payment stands out among, among the five. Now that would be an interesting point as it goes. But I think the real interest of the point is when we start to arrange the other four around the middle one. And here we have, if you look down at the bottom, I've done precisely that, following the Mishnah's repetition of key words and key motifs. In Nezek and Shevet, the ones that are written one underneath the other, in other words, the first and the fourth in the list, both of them open up with the phrase, Ro'inoto. Ro'inoto ki'ilu hu eved nimkar bashuk. Ro'inoto ki'ilu hu shomer kishu'in. In other words, you estimate what you pay by seeing him as though he were someone other than what he really is. Okay? The person really is a free man, but you see him as though he were a slave because you can't calculate the value of a body part except for a slave. Only a slave has his body sold. Okay? So that's the only way in which you can calculate the value of a part of the body. And the same way, the fellow was actually a piano player before and a concert pianist. So that's not what he was. He was not, uh, you know, he was not a night watchman beforehand, but since he can no longer return to his original profession, we say, we have to look at what he, he could possibly be uh, employed as doing now, and that's how we calculate how much we pay him for the amount of work lost. And the Mishnah, in fact, continues by saying, because I've already paid him the worth of his hand and his foot, which includes the value of the career that, he ha- that he's left behind. He'll never return to that career. The value of that career is exactly what I'm calculating when I, cal- when I look at him as a slave and calculate how much is a slave worth with a hand and without a hand. That's exactly what I'm calculating. What is his earning power with a hand? What is his earning power without a hand? And so the Mishnah creates this connection explicitly. It says, Shevet and Nezek complement one another. These are two complementary uh, payments that we must pay. And to underscore the complementary nature of these two uh, obligations, we have the parallel phraseology, Ro'ino ilu and Yadoviraglo. The other, uh, if we look at Sa'ar and Boshet, we won't see exact phrases repeated, but we will see a theme repeated. 
the theme in Tsar is Omdim Kama Adam How much would a person of this nature want to take in order to suffer such pain? Gemara, by the way, flips it around and says, person would say, I, I, I won't take any amount of money in order to suffer such pain, and says, on the contrary, if a person knows he, he must suffer pain, how much would he pay to have the pain reduced? Okay? To have some, some kind of uh, uh, anesthetic that would, that would alleviate the pain. Okay? Boshet, hakol Okay? Boshet, okay, is uh, according to the social standing of the one who shamed and the one who was shamed. So in both of these cases, the common theme is that it depends on the person. It depends on how the person feels. The person's feelings are what are, what, are, are, are what's at issue in both of these cases. Now, if we look a little more closely, we'll see that this parallel structure of the Mishnah, in other words, the first case parallels the fourth, the second case parallels the fifth, the third one stands by itself. Okay? It's a kind of fulcrum around which the other two are arrayed in, uh, on either end. If we think about the meaning of the structure, then we'll understand that, in fact, Nezek and Tsar form a pair. Shevet and Boshet form a pair. Note, by the way, Shevet and Boshet are also terms that use the exact same letters, are very similar in sound, so they form a pair literarily as well. Nezek and Tsar form a pair relating to uh, what happened to the person physically, but on two different levels. Nezek is what happened to the person's body physically. Sa'ar is what happened to the person mentally from a physical point of view. In other words, talking about the physical pain. The pain is an inner sensation. It's something internal, something mental, but it's referring to a physical component, okay? What the person feels in his body. Shevet and Boshet, I would argue, are not talking about the person's physical body, okay? The biology of the person. Shevet and Boshet are talking about the person as a member of society. Shevet is talking about the, uh, the profession that a person can, uh, uh, can practice, what he can contribute to society, and of course receive his uh, parnasa from society. Boshet is of course very much a social phenomenon. That's exactly what the Mishnah stresses. Hakol It all depends on the social standing. Okay, you have violated the person's dignity and you assess how much that's worth by, uh, by, by assessing uh, how respected this person was in the community and how respected the attacker was within the community. So really, the first two cases are talking about the physical damage that I've done to the person. The second two are talking about the social damage that I've done to the person. And in each group, there's also an internal division. The first in each group is talking about a physical side of it, something concrete, talking about the physical loss of a limb in, the, in Nezek, and, we're ta- and in Shevet, we're talking about the loss of work, something very concrete, something in the external world. It relates to his social standing, but to his external social standing, his earning power. Tsar and Boshet, on the other hand, are both referring to something internal, something mental, what a person feels internally. And so we have then a very clear structure which tells us that when a person 
damages the body of another, of another human being, it's really a very complex affair. It has a physical component and it has a social component. It has an external component, it has an internal component, and that creates four different cases depending on how you correlate these, these, different, these different categories. Where does Ripui fit into this? Ripui is exactly at the boundary line between the, uh, between the two groups. What does Ripui do? Well, first of all, heals the person physically. Of course, it doesn't restore what can't be restored. The person has lost the limb, that can't be restored. But it heals the person to the extent that he can be healed at this juncture, having lost the limb. And uh, Ripui, of course, has another effect. Once the person is healed, he can return to the workplace. So Ripui is very strategically placed. It concludes our discussion of the physical damage and moves us right into the discussion of the, of the, uh, of the social damage. Now, there's one further point I'd just like to touch on. The choice of examples for what is considered to be Chabalah, appears elsewhere in the Mishnah as the classic examples of a mum. A mum, a blemish that would disqualify a Kohen from serving the Beit HaMikdash. And mum is exactly the term the Torah uses in describing this kind of a Torah. In other words, what, what the Mishnah is suggesting is that in addition to the biological, the mental, the social component of the damage that has been done and must be compensated for, there's also religious damage. Okay, by violating the body of a person, by violating his dignity, you're also violating his sanctity. Okay? The person is sacred. Okay? He's sanctified. And in fact, the, the chapter of the Mishnah concludes with a very striking idea that a person is not allowed, uh, if a person says to someone else, go ahead, hit me, go ahead, cut off my hand, okay? you're not allowed to do it and, and you're required to pay damages. Because a person is not master over his own body. You're not master over your own body because the body, in fact, is sacred. And so, we see then that in damage to a person, there are all of these components that the Mishnah interweaves into, uh, into this framework. Let's turn to a third example. Okay, the Mishnah in Brachot, sixth chapter, deals with uh, blessings that a person makes uh, at mealtime over food. Most of the chapter deals with uh, the Brachot the blessings you make before uh, eating the food. The last Mishnah talks, uh, or the beginning of the last Mishnah actually, talks about the bracha uh, chronad, the bracha that you make after consuming the food. Okay, let's just read through the parak uh, quickly. Again, I'll read through in the Hebrew. Whoever needs can read in the English. Ketzad mevarchin al-perot. Now, as I read through the chapter, uh, you can give some thought to the first thing that we're going to do, which is to divide up the chapter into sections. Ketzad mevarchin ala perot. Al perot ha'ilan omer borei priyayetz chutz min ayayin shalayayin omer borei priyagafen. Al perot ha'aretz omer borei priyadama chutz min apat shalaya omer homotzi lechem min ha'aretz. Al yerakot omer borei priyadama Rabbi Yehuda omer borei minei deshaim. 
פרח על פירות האילן בורא פרי האדמה יצא, והפירות הארץ בורא פרי העץ לא יצא, אבל כולם הם אמר שהכל נהיה בדברו יצא. על דבר שאין גידולו מן הארץ אומר שהכל, על החומץ ועל הנובלות ועל הגובי אומר שהכל. רבי יהודה אומר כלשהו מן כללה אין מברכין עליו, I'll explain this detail. Um, we're dealing with something from which a person could derive benefit. Soured wine, fruits uh, that fell off on, on ripe and locusts. So the Tanakama says you make a bracha on this as you do on anything else. But even though some of these things are things that actually grow on trees or grow, uh, or grow from the ground, okay, because they're not the usual way of consuming the fruit, uh, you say a shahakol. Rabbi Yudah says because these things were produced because of a curse. The person wanted wine, not wine vinegar. Okay, the person uh, didn't want unripe fruits, he wanted ripe fruits. And so, since this particular food item was produced through a curse, he says you shouldn't make any blessing on it whatsoever. Mishnah Dalit. Hayu lefanav minim harbei Rabbi Yehuda Omer, im yesh peinehem mimin shiva mevarech alav, v'chachamim omrim mevarech al eze mehem shiyutzeh. V'rach al hayayin shlepne amazon, patar et hayayin shalachar amazon, ברך על הפרפרת שלפני המזון, פתר את הפרפרת שלאחר המזון. ברך על הפת, פתר את הפרפרת, על הפרפרת לא פתר את הפת. בית שמאי אומרים, אף לא מעשה קדרה. היו יושבים לאכול כל אחד ואחד מברך לעצמו, עשה בו אחד מברך לכולם. בא להם יין בתוך המזון, כל אחד ואחד מברך לעצמו, לאחר המזון אחד מברך לכולם. והוא אומר על המוגמר, אף על פי שאין מביאין את המוגמר, אלא לאחר הסעודה. הביאו לפניו מליח בתחילה, ופת אמו מברך על המליח ופותר את הפת, שפת תפלה לו. זה הכלל, כל שהוא עיקר ואמו תפלה, מברך על העיקר ופותר את התפלה. Okay, let's stop at this point and ask how we can divide up uh, this, this Mishnah. Okay, this, this, uh, this is the bulk of the chapter, how would we divide it up? Okay, any suggestions? At which point would you divide it? Uh, okay, good. Uh, I don't agree exactly with that division, but there's, a, there's merit to, uh, to your suggestion. Say the first three. Dalet Hevav, I think we definitely have to include Zayin together with Dalet Hevav because uh, He and Vav are both talking about making a bracha over one thing and exempting other things. Okay? In, in some cases, it's Uh, make a bracha over one food and exempting another kind of food, including another kind of food over which you'd make another kind of bracha. Or, some examples are you make a bracha over a certain food and exempt the same food but at a different part of the meal. Okay? And Mishnah Zayin fits, uh, uh, also fits in with that framework. Okay? And Mishnah Vav talks about where one person makes a bracha and exempts somebody else from, having, from the need to recite, a, uh, to, to recite a bracha. So I would say that following along your categories, I would divide it Dalid through Zayin. But in fact, what I'm going, yes, uh, in fact, what I'm going to suggest is that we should divide it after Dalid. Okay? And He through Zayin should be the unit. Okay? Now, Dalid really is a, a transitional point. It could go either way, but I'm going to argue that it's better to include it with Mishnayot Aleph through Gimel rather than to include it with Mishnayot Hey uh, through Zayin. Let's start off with a, a conceptual reason for it and in a moment we'll 
will cement that with a literary reason as well. The conceptual reason for it is that Mishnadalid is talking about brachot over individual items. It's all the same bracha in Mishnadalid. Okay, you're talking about different kinds of fruit. Over all of the fruits you would make bore priha eights. The question is, which one should you take? Okay, in other words, I know that I'm only going to make bore priha eights once. Which fruit should I take in order to recite that, that bracha? So that really still belongs to Aleph through Gimel. He through Zayin is actually talking about not prioritizing so much, but rather, as I said before, about exempting. As I make a bracha over one kind of food and exempt another kind of food that should require actually a different kind of bracha. So for that reason, I would already include Dalid with, uh, with Aleph through Gimel. Although, I think we've already seen that Dalid is very close to, uh, to Hay through Zion as well. There's, there's a, a common theme to them. Namely, I make a bracha over one thing and I exempt something else. Nonetheless, I think even conceptually, Dalid really belongs to Alf, uh, 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 with Aleph through Gimel. The cementing argument for Dalid belonging to Aleph through Gimel is literary. There's a key word that links the first four Mishnayot. It doesn't appear in Mishnabet, but it appears in all other three Mishnayot. And that's the word Min, species. Min or Minim, okay, the word species. And I don't think it's accidental at all that in all three of the Mishnayot in which the word Min appears, there's also a figure who appears, and that's Rabbi Yehuda. There are three disputes between Rabbi Yehuda and the Chachamim, and all of them revolve around the word min, okay? the word species. Okay? That's Aleph through Dalid. In Hethru Zayin, there's also a key word. Okay? The key word in Hethru Zayin is mazon. And mazon, which we normally translate as food, but in the context of the Mishnah here, you talk about lifneha mazon, you talk about lachara mazon, what it actually means is a meal. Mishnayot Aleph through Dalid don't talk about meals. They talk about eating individual food items. Mishnah Dalid moves a step towards a meal. I'm eating several food items together, but it's still not a meal. I'm eating a few fruits. Someone puts out a fruit platter. Okay? Like we have outside here. So you eat different fruits. That's not a meal. It's still a snack. Okay? But you're talking about already about eating several items together. So in that sense, it's similar to the next Mishnayot. But hey, through Zion are already talking about eating the same foods within the framework of a meal. Now, Mishnachet continues with the theme of a meal, but it's already talking about eating uh, 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 the bracha that you make after a meal. Okay? Up until now, we've been talking about the bracha that you make before a meal or during a meal before eating a particular food. And now in Mishnachet, we talk about how you make a bracha after the meal. The end of Mishnachet is very strange, and we're not going, this is one of the things we're going to leave largely unsolved, although we will say something about it. Hashotem Mayim Litzma'o Omer Shakol Nyabedvaro Rabbi Tarfon Omer Borei Nefashot Rabot. There's a dispute what bracha you make uh, over drinking water. Water is not like eating a food. Okay, so someone says, well, it should be just like eating anything that doesn't grow from the ground. You make a shakol, so here also you make a shakol. But, but Rabbi Tarfon says, no, drinking water is different. Food requires 
a bracha of shakol niyabidvaro or borei priyadamar, borei priyayet or whatever. Water, on the other hand, is a different experience. It's not an eating experience. It's an experience of slaking thirst. And here you make a bracha, I would say really about existence or subsistence. When you drink water, that's about staying alive. Okay, now what this exactly is doing at the end of the chapter is a big question. We'll say only a few words about it and leave it largely as a question mark. Um, but this does seem to be a refugee from the first part of the chapter and not really belonging to the second part of the chapter. But it is making a very interesting statement that I think reflects, again, on a central idea of the first part of the chapter. And that is, when I eat a food, I don't just make a blessing on food. I make a blessing on a specific kind of food. And particularly, I make a blessing on, how did I get this food? Where did it come from? What was the process by means of which I got this food? Did it grow from the ground? Did it come from a tree? Okay, and as we'll see in a bit, in a bit there can be some uh, even more complicated procedures that are involved and that become part of the bracha that we recite. But that's over food. Over water, we don't make that kind of a bracha, at least according to Rabbi Tarfon. According to Rabbi Tarfon, over that you make a bracha that simply relates to subsistence. I must drink water in order to survive, okay? and therefore I make a bracha basically over providing me with the means of survival. Food is more than just the means of survival, and that's really the theme that we're going to be investigating. Now, the interesting thing is, we noticed a key word in the first four Mishnayot, we noticed a key word in the next three Mishnayot. What I think is fascinating about this chapter, if you'll turn to page five, your sources, is the parallels between the two halves of the chapter. And this, by the way, includes both Mishnah Dalet as being part of the first half of the chapter and the last part of Mishnah Chet as, being, uh, as belonging to the second half of the chapter. And take a look here at the, uh, take a look here at the, uh, uh, at the patterns. First of all, uh, in the first Mishnah, we learned that there are exceptions to the bracha that you make for things that grow from the ground or from things that grow on trees. The exceptions are yayin and pot, wine and bread. And yayin and pot play very, very central roles in the second half of the chapter. In fact, they are the central features of a meal. Okay? Uh, bread, of course, is what you, your kovea su'uda on the bread. And wine is something that as discussed here and also in the eighth chapter of Brachot, you drink it at the beginning of the meal, at the end of the meal, during the meal. It's a very significant beverage that accompanies you throughout the meal. And so the very first discussion of what bracha do you make on an individual food item is already sort of looking ahead to the second part of the chapter where we're going to be fitting individual food items into a framework of a meal. Another connection. Imyesh b'nehem mimin shiva says says Rabbi Yehuda in the last Mishnah of the first section. He says, when I have to prioritize the, the food items and make a bracha over one of them to exempt the others, I will first of all look for one of the Shiva Minim, one of the species for which the land of Israel is blessed. And these are exactly 
the species that, according to one opinion in the last Mishnah, you say Birkat HaMazon over the, same, uh, over the exact same, same species. Of course, the Bracha Shakol Niabit Baro appears in both halves, halves of the chapter. Okay? And we already noted that Mishnah Dalid is a kind of transition point. It, it occurs at the end of the first half, but it's really looking ahead towards the second half. So, when you look at Mishnah Dalid and Mishnah Hay, you really see Mishnah Dalid as belonging almost as closely to Mishnah Hay and to Mishnah Zayin as it does, as it does to, uh, to Mishnah Dalid. Okay, so we see then that we have two very different, at, and, uh, uh, at the outset it appeared, two very different sets of halachic issues. What bracha do I make over an individual food item is the first issue. The second issue is, how do I eat different food items? How do I make brachot over different food items within the framework of a meal? Those were the two issues. But the Mishnah seems to be telling us, don't separate this into two issues. Combine them, interrelate them. Show how the brachot that you make over individual food items is related to the role that those food items play within a meal and apparently, uh, and apparently vice versa. Let's take the reasoning a step further. In order to do that, I'd like to look at, uh, at an interesting point from the first Mishnah and, and uh, to relate it to the machloket, the machlokot between Rabbi Yudah and, and the Tanakama. What in fact, if the word mean is running through those three machlokot, what characterizes Rabbi Yudah's position? Is there some one characteristic that we can note in all three Mishnayot. I think the Mishnah, by using this key word mean in all, three, in all three cases, is trying to indicate that there is a common theme. And to my mind, there in fact is one. If you look at the first Mishnah, where Rabbi Yehuda says, you don't say Borei Pri Adama over Yerakot the way you do over Pri Adama, obviously different kinds of vegetables. Apparently Yerakot are herbs. They hug the ground more closely seem to have less uh, of an independent existence. Uh, and he says, over those you make, if we uh, think about it for a moment, Rabbi Yehuda is really rounding out uh, the framework of Brachot in this Mishnah into a well-known Pasuk. The Pasuk that tells us about the creation of, uh, of vegetation. In the first chapter of Breshit, okay, Okay, you have perot ha'aretz, you have perot ha'etz, and you also have deshe. The deshe is missing from the system of the Chachamim. Rabbi Yehuda seems to me to be saying, when, when we recite our brachot, we are plugging into Breshit Perek Alet. And in fact, what, what are we saying in these brachot? Saying, Borei Priha, whatever. Okay? God is the one who created. So we hark back to creation. We look back at the Pasuk of creation. And Rabbi Yudah says we have to adhere very closely to the Pasukim of creation. If the word Desha appears within the creation, it should appear within our system of Brachot as well. The Chachamim don't see uh, the connection to the creation story as being quite as, uh, quite as strong. Okay? They're willing to see there a, a, a bit of divergence between the creation story and the framework of Brachot. Let's look a little further. 
Rabbi Yehuda says, whatever is a min klala, ain mevarchin alav. Why? Well, I'm deriving benefit from it. As far as I'm concerned, it's serving my needs. I mean, right now I happen to need vinegar. Okay? That's what my recipe calls for. I can't use wine. Okay? I need the vinegar. Okay? So for my purposes, I'm getting the benefit out of exactly what I have before me. Rabbi Yehuda says, no, I have to look at it from a, in a broader context. I can't look at my immediate use. I have to look at what produced it. What produced it was a curse. Okay? And therefore, Rabbi Yehuda, again, I think, is creating a kind of objective framework for the, for the brachot. The brachot reflect an objective framework, whereas for the Tanakama and both Mishnayot, the brachot are more closely related to how I experience it, how I derive benefit from it. And it seems to me that that's borne out by Mishnah Dalit as well. Rabbi Yehuda again su- suggests an objective criterion. W- on what do I make the uh, highest pri- priority bracha? Shivat Aminim. Shivat Aminim are the species that represent the divine gift of the land. Okay? They're a highly charged symbol in Jewish tradition. The Chachamim say, I don't care about the highly charged symbol. You make the bracha on whatever you prefer. What you like, that's what you make the bracha uh, uh, about. I think we see a pattern here. Rabbi Yehuda sees the human brachot as being tied to the divine blessing. God bestows blessings upon us and we respond by blessing. When we make a blessing, we're responding to the divine blessing. The categories that we adopt in order to bless God are categories that God created, are categories that we find in the Torah. Okay? Categories like Kala and Shivat Aminim and the categories of the creation of vegetation. And the Chachamim say, no. When you bless God, you're starting off with your experience right now. You are experiencing something now. You are deriving benefit. That's the key. Okay, the Bracha will tie you in with the framework of creation, but you're focused much more heavily on the framework of your current, uh, of your current uh, 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 derivation of benefit. Now, just to take this idea one step further, I'd like to look at a very interesting bracha in the first Mishnah. The bracha is Hamotzi Lechem Min Haaretz. This is actually a reference to a pasuk. But if we look at the pasuk, we'll see that the Mishnah has done something very strange with this Pasuk. Okay, the Pasuk reads as follows. It's in Tilim Kuf Dalid. We recite it every Rosh Kodesh. You don't, you don't have this Pasuk in front of you. Um, okay, the, the, the Pasuk reads as follows. Mashkeh harim me'al yotav mi'prim ma'asecha tizbah ha'aretz. Matzmiach hatzir labhema ve'esev la'avodat ha'adam lo'tzi lechem min ha'aretz. God is the one who produces... Uh, who, who produces uh, hay in the fields for the animals and asev, okay, different kinds of vegetation for the work of man lehotzi lechem min haaretz. Who is motzi lechem min haaretz according to the pasuk? Man. It's man's work that produces lechem min haaretz. And what do we say in our bracha? Motzi lechem min haaretz. There's no food that is more labor-intensive than bread. Okay? Just look at the Mishnah and Shabbat. You see the whole list of, uh, uh, of 11 machot that are required in order to produce bread. Okay? So, 
uh, man could very well feel if there's anything which God didn't produce, think of the story of Rabbi Akiva and Tunus Rufus, okay, if there's something God didn't produce, it's, it's bread, I produced it. And I even have a pasuk to, to support it. And yet, what we do in the brachot is we say that when man invests so much labor in producing a food item, that requires a very special bracha, a higher level bracha. This is a bracha okay, that not only is special in its own right, it's a bracha that exempts you from every other bracha in the framework of the meal. Okay? In other words, we're again encountering the same idea of a divine human partnership within the framework, within the framework, of the, uh, uh, within the framework of the brachot. And so, if we look at this chapter as a whole, then we'll see that in presenting the brachot, what, 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 this, what the, the sages of the Mishnah are really doing is more than just telling man, when you derive benefit, bless God. There's really a, a, a kind of entirely developed phenomenology of eating that's developed within the Mishnah. Okay? When I eat, okay, I'm not just fulfilling a biological need or biological desire. Okay? When I eat, I'm also uh, enjoying nature. In other words, the food that I consume also links me up with nature. So my enjoyment of the tree is related to the eating. It's when I eat that I make a blessing over the tree. It's when I eat that I make a blessing over the land from which I grew, from which I grew the, uh, the, the, the fruit. Uh, it's when I eat that I also appreciate that all of man's labor in producing food is done by divine agency. The way in which God provides me, uh, provides me with bread is by enlisting man to work together with him in producing the food. And finally... There's also a social framework, a cultural framework. We don't eat individual foods. We eat foods primarily within the framework of a meal. A meal is a certain cultural structure within we, which we eat the foods. Different foods have different meanings and significance within the framework of the meal. And the meal is also a social structure. All of these go into our experience of making a bracha, and so essentially what a bracha does is it takes the biological fact of eating filtered through a culturally and socially conditioned framework that we call a meal and turns that into an object of worship. We bless God and we bless God in ways that reflect all of those different aspects of this experience of eating. I'd like to conclude by briefly uh, looking at the final Mishnah that you have before you, Megillah Peregdalid Mishnah Gimel. This is the Mishnah that lists the ten Dvarim Shebik the ten things uh, normally termed as uh, matters of sanctity that require a minyan, require ten. Ein porsin et shma, ve'en ovrin lifnea teva, ve'en nosin et kapehen, ve'en korin batorah, ve'en maftirin banavi, Note that there are ten Dvarim Shibik Dusha in this listing. And the ten divide quite neatly into two groups of five. The first five are centered in the Beit Knesset, communal prayer. Okay? 
Porsin at Shema is a particular way of reciting Shema and Birkot Shema. Ovrin Lefnei Tevach, Hazarat Tashad, Tznosin et Kapehen, Korin Batarayin, Maftirin Banavi. The structure, by the way, of this of the service described here is a kind of dialogue structure. Some of them relate to receiving the word of God. Recitation of Shema is essentially accepting upon ourselves the yoke of God, the word of God. Nosinet kapehen berkat koanim is being blessed by God, by his agents, the, the, the koanim, the priests. Okay, Korin batorah is to receive the revelation. Okay, it's to receive again the word of God. And the others, Ovrin lifnat teva, okay, and to some extent, Nosinet kapehem, focus more on our approach to God, our worship, uh, our worship of God, our, our, addressing, our addressing Him. This is the framework of the first five, the first five that center on the Beit Knesset. The last five are talking mostly about significant uh, life cycle moments, particularly the first three are talking about uh, practices related to Avelut, mourning, and the, the, the consoling of, of the mourners. Birkat Chatanim is the foil to that, which is, of course, the celebration of a Chatan Bekala, the celebration of a wedding. And finally, the celebration of a communal meal. In all of these five cases, unlike the first five, the first five are cases where the community gathers specifically in order to worship. The last five are cases where the community gathers in order to do something together. The worship is then added into that framework. Okay? But essentially, the community is gathering to mourn together, to console the mourners, to celebrate together. Okay? And the worship part of it is, is really packed on uh, and, 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 and is not an integral part of the, of the procedure. We're going to leave out the last example which relates to Beit HaMikdash and plays a but I think is a very interesting role, but one that we can't get into. But the thought I would like to uh, conclude with is that, in fact, the Mishnah, which divides these two, the Talmud, in fact, derives the need for ten in, in, bo- in each of these two lists from different reasons. That's the final uh, source that we don't have time to look at together, but uh, you're invited to look at on your own. In fact, they do seem to be two very different things, but when the Mishnah combines them, and when the two of them together add up to the number 10, which is the central number of the Mishnah, I think the Mishnah is making a statement. The statement that I believe the Mishnah is making is that the two concepts of community impact on one another. The first community is a community of the Shachanti B'toch B'nai Israel. God dwells among the community of Israel, the Nikdashti B'toch B'nei Israel. He's sanctified in the midst of the community of Israel. This is a community of Shekhinah and of sanctity, a community of worship. The second community is a community of social cohesiveness, of people getting together to help one another, to support one another. And I believe that the Mishnah, by linking these two together within the framework of one Mishnah, is telling us that the two communities are one. God dwells in a community which functions cohesively on the level of social interaction and a community functions properly when God dwells among them. We've come together tonight to grieve together over the loss of a woman. 
I was not privileged to know personally, from whom we have heard that she was a remarkable and highly beloved member of the Jewish community. I've attempted to illustrate tonight some of the ways in which the Mishnah utilizes the categories of nature and of community to shape our worship of God in creative, sophisticated ways of great spiritual depth and significance. I've attempted in this shiur to deepen our community's understanding and appreciation of the Mishnah text to which Rivka devoted years of study. Here at Tzon, that this communal monument to Rivka may serve as consolation for the bereft family and the bereft community which Rivka left behind. Thank you.